0: Good evening. Welcome to Tuesday Evening Chapel. Welcome back. Did you guys have a good break? Or Let me ask you, who was here last week? Oh, uh, you were OK. I wasn't. But um, thanks for coming. Our speaker for this evening is Dr. Tom King. Um, Most of you would have enjoyed him for um, introduction to Old Testament or Biblical Interb or any Old Testament courses. So let's welcome him, Dr. King. Stand with me this evening as we begin our time of praise and worship. Let us pray. God, we trust and we seek you with all our hearts. There is no other God like you. Almighty God. And once again we just offer you all of our heart. In Jesus' name, amen. We offer you our hearts, God. Thank you, God, for who you are. We want to just place our trust in you, and we are yours. To use God for your glory be with us this evening in Jesus name we pray amen you may be seated
1: Our text this evening comes from 1 Kings, chapter 19. Beginning at verse four, listen to the word of the Lord. Elijah himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a juniper tree and requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough now, O Lord, Take my life, I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him, and he said to him, Arise, eat. Then he looked, and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lie down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed thy prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire a sound of gentle blowing. And it came about when Elijah heard it. He wrapped his voice, his face in his mantle and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold a voice came to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, torn down thine altars, and killed the prophets with a sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint... Hazael, king over Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And then, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. I love the Old Testament. I hope it shows. Nevertheless, there are certain texts which make me uncomfortable. Now I know those of you who were here last fall in chapel are thinking I didn't seem uncomfortable enough with the impurity laws. (laughs) But I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about accounts whose message brings conviction and pressures me to adjust my perspective and my priorities. Now, I praise God for his blessings in my life, which are well beyond what I deserve. I like downtime and dress-down Fridays and evenings at home and leisure reading, weekends, nice restaurants, retreats, vacations. You get the idea. I recognize that God often provides such blessings, and I can even dig up biblical passages which affirm our need for refreshment and joyful, abundant life. However, when I take these things for granted, I sometimes develop that selfish feeling of entitlement. Then, when I don't get enough me time, or feel that other demands are interfering with my need for renewal i get grumpy and demanding i end up complaining feeling exhausted and become depressed and at such times i anticipate sometimes expect god to provide another break and a relaxing time of renewal if it doesn't come I often fall into that personal pity party and may even question the purpose of living at such times I need someone to shake me back into reality I hear my mother's voice telling me to count my blessings reminding me that things could be much worse and there are others who suffer much more than I. 1 Kings 19 is one of those biblical texts which serves to shake up my perspective. It's one of those uncomfortable passages which help bring us back to the greater reality of God's kingdom and cause us to realign our priorities. Verses four to six of 1 Kings 19 describe the prophet Elijah as exhausted depressed, and even suicidal. He asks the Lord to take his life for he's no better than his ancestors. He feels like a failure. He no longer wants to live. He falls asleep, gets up to eat and drink, and falls asleep again. So what happened to bring Elijah to such a suicidal state? This passage is the climax of an account which begins back in chapter 17 with Elijah's announcement to the king of Israel that there will be a severe drought, which of course brings with it famine. This announcement is in response to the sins of King Ahab, who married Jezebel of Sidon, Jezebel appears to sponsor prophets of the false gods Baal and Asherah and influences Ahab to lead the nation in idolatrous worship and apostasy. And it's in opposition to Ahab and Jezebel and their sacrilege that Elijah announces this horrible drought. Of course, rather than being concerned about their sins which brought about this punishment, The king and his queen blame Elijah for the intolerable conditions of drought and famine. Now being subject himself to both the drought and the threats from the king, God has to sustain Elijah. And he does so by having him hide near an intermittent stream east of the Jordan. The Lord provides food for Elijah through ravens who bring him bread and meat. So Elijah must drink from a stream which only flows on a sporadic basis and eats his food from an unclean bird. Now I always, I always think of birds and how they normally feed their young by regurgitating their food and I come up with an image that tends to suppress your appetite in the first place. The word of the Lord later sends Elijah out of the country to a town in Sidon where he is to be cared for by a widow and her son who at the time anticipate eating their last meal and dying themselves. So now Elijah resides in the very land from which the idolatrous Queen Jezebel had come and he is to be nurtured by a poor widow and a fatherless child who have already exhausted their own resources. At least a step up from eating out of the mouth of a raven. When the child dies, the widow blames Elijah, expelling exasperating complaints upon Elijah. Nevertheless, the Lord miraculously provides food for the trio and raises the child from the dead through Elijah. And as a result, this widow of Sidon expresses a statement of faith proclaiming that the word of the Lord in Elijah's mouth is truth. Ironically, at that moment, while Jezebel, a wealthy queen from Sidon, leads the land of Israel in apostasy, it's a poor widow from Sidon outside the land of Israel who appears to be the only one declaring faith in the Lord God. Now, after three years of drought, the word of the Lord sent Elijah to confront King Ahab, whose wife Jezebel was killing off the prophets of the Lord. At this point, Elijah arranges for that famous contest on Mount Carmel, held between himself and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah. We're familiar with the astonishing victory which the Lord brings about before all Israel by raining down fire from heaven to consume the offering on the altar, in contrast to the absolute failure of the prophets of Baal to even produce a spark for their offering. And afterward, Elijah carries out the gruesome task of slaying all the prophets of Baal. Finally, Elijah announces the end of the drought. As a heavy rain fell, the hand of the Lord caused Elijah to outrun Ahab's chariot all the way back to Jezreel. Now, I don't know exactly how far that is. I've run marathons before, but I've never outrun a chariot for any distance. I expect Elijah's lungs were ready to explode. In response to the events of that day, Queen Jezebel sent out word that she intended to kill Elijah. Therefore, as the biblical text records, Elijah was afraid, He fled for his life, and accordingly, we find him as we read in 1 Kings 19, exhausted, hiding in the wilderness, and wishing he were dead. Now, I imagine we can all relate somewhat to Elijah's depression. Even even after that sensational victory at Mount Carmel, we understand Elijah's gloominess, exhaustion, and depression, often set in after great accomplishment. That's why pastors often take Monday off as their day off, following the exhilaration of God's work through them on Sunday. Through the years of my formal education, I was always surprised by an unexpected depression which set in at the end of every academic year. I thought that I should be celebrating and cheering the end of another demanding year of homework and reading. Yet an inexplicable gloom took over for a handful of days as each summer began. For Elijah, this phenomenon followed that great victory at Mount Carmel. And it was compounded by the last three years of enduring drought with meager food and water, demeaning and life-threatening accusations, and having to overthrow hundreds of false prophets. At times perhaps we can relate to what may seem to be just as oppressive circumstances. You know the stories, you live the stories. Working a job around the school schedule, Still trying to please the boss, giving quality time to the needs of spouse and children, the pressure of reading and writing papers and completing exams for school, and trying to give whatever is left over to current ministry opportunities at the church. I remember during doctoral studies thinking that I was just going to be a professional student. I thought at times the formal classwork would never come to an end. It strung out year after year. The business of pursuing God's call can be exhausting. At times, perhaps, we can relate to Elijah in the wilderness wanting to end it all. So at this point in Elijah's life, when we find him completely drained, and wanting God to take his life I expect here's a prime time for the Lord to step up and provide for Elijah a much needed vacation perhaps a time of R&R and I don't mean reading and research some r r at some luxurious resort in Engedi on the shores of the salt sea yes Elijah surely deserves a physical spiritual retreat for refreshment, renewal, and new inspiration. But my expectations are not what the biblical text describes. In contrast, an angel of the Lord awakens Elijah from his depressed slumber and has him eat bread and drink water. After falling asleep again, the angel awakens Elijah a second time, informing him he must eat and drink some more, because otherwise The journey will be too much for you." Journey? Too much? After his second nap and meal, the text tells us that Elijah went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. Okay, so that's the plan. Rather than a resort near the sea, God's blessing Elijah with a mountain retreat, likely at the newly refurbished luxury lodge at the base of Mount Sinai with in-room jacuzzi and winter ski (laughs) package. Well, when we get there, the lodge must have been undergoing renovations because verse nine tells us Elijah spent the night in a cave. It's at this point, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. And the word was a question for Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah's response further reflects his weariness and dejection. The Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. This seems strange given the recent victory at Mount Carmel, in which Elijah killed all the prophets of Baal. Nevertheless, It's understandable in light of Jezebel's threat to kill Elijah and his exhaustion-induced depression. Elijah is then told by the word of the Lord to stand on the mountain before the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then we read that Elijah witnessed a great wind that split mountains and broke rocks, an earthquake, and a fire, but God was not in any of these. Now, these are manifestations from God, which we've seen before in the Bible. God's wind drove back the Red Sea for the Hebrews to cross on dry ground. Like an earthquake, God opened up the earth and swallowed the rebels led by Korah in the wilderness. And the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in flames of fire from within a bush. Yet for Elijah on the mountain, The text declares that God was not in the wind or the earthquake or the fire that he witnessed. Following these, Elijah heard the voice or sound of a small, gentle whisper. Upon hearing this, Elijah stood at the mouth of the cave and a voice said to him, the same words we read before. What are you doing here Elijah? And Elijah repeats the same response as before. The Israelites have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets, and I'm the only one left. Did Elijah not hear the question the first time? Did his response the first time imply he didn't take the question seriously or didn't understand the question? Was he not convinced it was really God asking the question? Perhaps Elijah and those before him too often expected word from the Lord through supernatural and spectacular manifestations like great wind, earthquake, and fire. Did God have to ask the same question again after displaying such powerful signs yet making them void of God's presence and ultimately speaking through a still small voice? One commentator writes that the admonition here is to expect an intelligible revelation to find God's direction in the ordinary course of daily life and to communicate it regularly and constructively. The revelation of God in an intelligible communication rather than the spectacular phenomenon described marks an advance in human conception of God as personally accessible and intelligible to man within the framework of human experience, anticipating the prophetic conception of the expression of divine will in contemporary history and divine revelation in Jesus Christ. Yeah, I had to read it twice too. Here we go. The admonition here is to expect an intelligible revelation to find God's direction in the ordinary course of daily life, and to communicate it regularly and constructively. The revelation of God in an intelligible communication, rather than the spectacular phenomenon described, marks an advance in human conception of God as personally accessible and intelligible to man within the framework of human experience, anticipating the prophetic conception of the expression of the divine will in contemporary history and the divine revelation in Jesus Christ. So it seems that God presents Elijah with these dramatic displays of wind and quake and fire, yet somehow communicates God is not in them, in contrast God's word does become manifest through a soft gentle whisper, a still small voice. The message to Elijah and those who follow seems to be that although God can certainly exhibit his power through miraculous demonstrations, we need not wait for such rare expressions or limit God to such exceptional revelation. Rather we can look for God's word and direction through common, rational, even subtle, everyday human experience which remains open and sensitive to the Lord's presence. The classic illustration of this, which I think we've all heard before, is that of the man who was stranded on the roof of his home after a flood. He had ignored the radio report warning the town to evacuate because he believed God loved him and God would save him. And when a person in a rowboat came by, the man refused rescue, stating that God loved him and God would save him. And then a helicopter came with a ladder, flew over to save the man, but again he refused, shouting, God loved him and God would save him. The man eventually drowned and went to heaven. And he asked the Lord, Why didn't you save me? Don't you love me? And the Lord replied, I sent you a radio report, a rowboat, and a helicopter. Why are you here? We don't need to wait for God to send a hurricane or open up the earth or rain down fire from heaven before we pay attention to his calling. We need to stay tuned to his providential and compassionate leading in our lives through the work of his Holy Spirit in our daily experience. Now at this point, the Lord gave Elijah some definitive instruction. In the context of the great victory at Mount Carmel, the following death threats from Queen Jezebel, and Elijah's personal breakdown in the wilderness, I still anticipate this is the point that the Lord is going to grant Elijah a sabbatical period with plenty of rest, renewal, and refreshment. But in contrast, Elijah is given three tasks. He's told to anoint two kings to replace the current monarchs in Syria and Israel. Recall Elijah's already in trouble with the reigning king of Israel, so this will certainly not endear him to Ahab. And appointing a new king to rule over a foreign country might be compared to sticking your head into a giant hornet's nest. And furthermore, as if to accentuate how imperiled Elijah will be after the first two jobs, the third task is to replace himself. That's why I'm uncomfortable with this passage. At Elijah's most vulnerable point, when he's broken, he's weary, running for his life, wanting to die, thinking he's the only faithful servant of the Lord left in the land. At such a point, through his still small voice, God sends Elijah on what appears to be his final mission, placing his life in further jeopardy and culminating in the need to find his own replacement. This is where I hear my mother's voice, which was not always small and still, reminding me that the world does not revolve around you, Tommy. It's not all about me and my prosperity and my rewards as a hard-working servant of God as if I'm the only one left. There is a sense in which the all-consuming work of the kingdom of God demands all that we are. That is not comfortable to me. Because this same mother also taught me from the scriptures about the importance of resting in the Lord, recognizing Jesus' words, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, and the importance of avoiding burnout. I believe in the critical value of proper rest and renewal and God's promises regarding restoration but that's another sermon. The message here in 1 Kings 19 includes for us a profound reminder that we are the clay. and God is the potter. I'm the servant. He is the master. It's a reminder of priority. It's not about me. It is indeed all about God and God's kingdom. It's a reminder that we need to put aside our complaints and our pity parties. It's a reminder I should be grateful for life and breath and the opportunity to serve at the pleasure of the creator of the universe. One of my heroes in life is someone who radiates this very message. Namely, my mother-in-law, Audrey Patching. She appears to have no concept of any word or action concerned with self. She sees no value in anything which is not driven by the motive to serve God in some way. Vacations have no attraction to her unless there is some family member or friend or even stranger to whom she can minister along the way. She lives a simple lifestyle with no desire for extravagance. All her time and resources are dedicated to activities which contribute in some way to the work of the Lord. She has spent her life supporting her husband, caring for her children, serving in the church, working as a director for child evangelism fellowship, all to the glory of God. And as a widow in a small town, at times when child evangelism had insufficient funds, She joyfully worked with no pay. Most amazingly, this life is not lived begrudgingly. She finds the greatest joy and fulfillment when she can function completely devoid of concern for self. For her, it is clear, it's all about God's kingdom. At the end of our passage, Elijah is reminded he's not alone after all. God has left 7,000 who remain faithful. Seven in the Bible is often a conventional number representing that which is whole and complete. And a 1,000 is a common multiplier used to refer to multitudes. So God communicates to Elijah there is still a complete multitude of others who serve the Lord. Despite our own sense of despair, we recognize the same is true for us. We're not alone. The call from God is sometimes all-consuming, yet there is a multitude of fellow believers with whom we can fellowship, from whom we draw encouragement. And specifically in our case, on this campus, we're surrounded by fellow students preparing for various forms of ministry. We're blessed to live in a community with over 70 parachurch organizations. There's that number seven again. Working to advance God's kingdom. But most importantly, God is alive and active. And God is involved in the great work of reconciling the world to himself. God speaks to us in a variety of ways, including those common, Every day means. And we affirm that if God be for us, who can stand against us? So, in the end, like Elijah, we must cling to the words of, yes, our chapel theme trust in the Lord with all. our heart pray with me our Lord in the discomfort of the demands that we feel from your kingdom we pray for your inspiration we pray for your empowerment that we might find joy and fulfillment in the great and wondrous work Of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. You're dismissed.